1: Have you ever had an idea that you just had to make real, no matter what it took, no matter what obstacles were in your way, no matter how many times people told you no, you just couldn't stop until it existed? Well, this is one of those stories. It begins with an idea in 1988 and leads to the first ever autonomous AI solution to be approved by the FDA for diagnosis without physician input. Dr. Michael Abramoff. MD, PhD, is the founder and executive chairman of Digital Diagnostics, the autonomous AI diagnostics company, which was the first in any field of medicine to get FDA authorization for autonomous AI. Dr. Abramoff is a neuroscientist, a practicing physician, and holds a PhD in artificial intelligence and machine learning. In 1988, Michael was working on artificial intelligence during his residency and began to think that... A computer could diagnose diabetic retinopathy. Given the technology at the time, this idea may have been a a bit of a stretch. Still, Michael set out to prove it could be
0: done. Joining Dr. Abramoff in this interview, we have Seth Rainford, the president and COO at Digital Diagnostics. Seth focuses on expanding market opportunities and driving operational excellence within the company. He also brings more than a decade of executive experience to Digital Diagnostics, including the successful management of large-scale P&Ls, strong organic and inorganic business development expertise, and a complex multi-site operations leadership within the healthcare industry. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Abramov and Seth about the 30-year journey that led to the founding of Digital Diagnostics and the first-ever FDA-approved autonomous AI in healthcare. Plus, we explore the challenges they continue to work through as they commercialize their product to support organizations looking to win in value-based care. Let's now hear from these two amazing guests as they discuss how
1: autonomous AI can close care gaps and improve quality and equity. Dr. Abramoff, Seth, welcome to the Race to Value. It's great to have you on this week.
2: Very excited to be here. Thanks for having us.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot. Well, as we begin our interview today, I'd like to discuss where we are with the scalability of artificial intelligence, especially when it comes to healthcare. We've certainly come a long way in the last 50 years with advancements in neuroscience, sensory processing, machine learning, artificial neural networks, and autonomous AI in healthcare. However, there was just recently a highly notable and well-publicized setback, and that was the failure of Watson Health. IBM spent more than a decade trying to make a go of that, and that was its moonshot to apply artificial intelligence in healthcare, and Watson was going to revolutionize everything from diagnosing patients and recommending treatment options to finding candidates for clinical trials, and now after billions of investment and some high-profile setbacks, I know they're effectively selling Watson for parts, so I, I thought that would be a kind of a good initial kind of consideration as we start talking about this convergence of AI and value and the implications in healthcare. You know, I know one of Watson's biggest setbacks was the revelation that its cancer diagnostics tool wasn't trained with real patient data, but instead hypothetical cases provided by a small group of doctors. And I know there were some, maybe some biases and some blind spots that weren't necessarily generalizable to patient cases. I'm hoping you could maybe provide some context and just in terms of the overall Uh, history, kind of the state of where we are currently in AI and healthcare. I mean, we're going to get into, obviously, what the great work that Digital Diagnostics is doing and how we can use autonomous AI to close care gaps and improve quality and equity. But I I wanted to start the conversation today by seeing if you could provide perspective on where AI and healthcare is today in terms of overcoming The scaling limitations of human cognition diagnostics that leads to overspending limited access and inequitable care. What are the implications of autonomous AI in improving patient outcomes and really increasing efficiencies when it comes to access and time as we transition to value based care in our country.
2: Well, thanks so much, and uh, maybe I'll take a shot at answering that. There's a lot of things in there, and we'll obviously welcome Dr. Abramoff's perspective on that as well. So first, I'm Seth Rainford, uh, and I have the pleasure of serving as president, COO, and co-founder at Digital Diagnostics. And what's interesting about what you said is I actually think we are at an inflection point with AI, and specifically with autonomous AI. And oftentimes, I use this parallel path with some of what we saw in the history of DNA. And what I mean by that is, you know, the, the idea of DNA was found, uh, discovered back in the mid-1800s. You have sort of this uh, the double helix in the 1950s. And then in 1986, for the first time ever, DNA was actually used in a courtroom and so if you fast forward to today, DNA is used every day, arguably with, uh, with life and death decisions, in, both in a courtroom and as well as in our home with, with tests like 23andMe, Ancestry.com, et cetera. And so if you think about the trajectory and the path of something like DNA, and then you port that over to what we see going on with artificial intelligence, and, and in our case, in particular, autonomous AI we really think that we are at that similar inflection point where uh, it's not just an idea or something that folks are going to get to, say, in the next five or 10 years, but it's something that is here. It's something that the FDA has cleared. It's something that we are seeing rolled out across multiple care sites. And I I actually don't think we are far off at all from everybody from the patient to the provider looking at testing and saying, "Well, well, why would we use You know, only human cognition to make this decision. Why wouldn't I rely on what has been proven to be safe, accurate, effective, and extremely cost effective? You know, getting to some of your comments around value with autonomous AI. So, if you just use those as parallel paths, I would say we are not five or 10 years away. We're actually doing this today. And um, more to the point, we are uh, a company that has built the first ever autonomous AI diagnostic platform, where in fact, the FDA has cleared us to make, or the technology rather, to make a medical decision instead of a physician.
3: Yeah, I can expand a little bit. I um, Thanks. Michael Abramoff, um, I'm the founder, executive chairman of Digital Diagnostics. As background, I'm a neuroscientist originally, then became a physician and computer engineer, did a PhD in, uh, in AI, and founded the company in, uh, in 2010 essentially to to solve the problems that you and and Seth uh, mentioned. And, you know, going back to your questions about IBM, Watson, you know, we can really go back to the early history of of AI and later autonomous AI in healthcare, which is that even in the 60s, people were trying to make or have computers aid uh, physicians in in make better diagnosis, prescriptions, treatments. They were called expert systems at the time. People did PhDs. And like Seth was saying, it was always five years in the future, never really happened. Uh, In the 80s, there was another wave where we started working with uh, simple neural networks, like you mentioned already, essentially mimicking the brain in a computer, again, trying to make medical decisions uh, with that. Again, it was always five years away, like Seth mentioned, and so never really was implemented. And then where we currently are, I think, like said mentioned also, is that it's actually implemented in a healthcare system. It's reimbursed by, by Medicare and many payers. FDA has cleared it. It's part of the standards of care now. And so it's a very different situation. And I think a very important factor is that uh, you need to do it right. To do something in a healthcare, and especially something as revolutionary as something where a computer rather than a human is making a medical decision when for thousands of years, uh, humans have made these medical decisions. It really takes the support of everyone, every stakeholder in the healthcare system. And that means patients first and foremost, physicians and other providers, people who pay for healthcare like payers and governments, regulators, and even standard organizations like the American Diabetes Association, who sends the standard for the care for people that suffer from diabetes. And so it is essential that you do it right and that you get the support from all stakeholders. And for that, you need to address a lot of issues. For example, does it improve patient outcome? If you start with the technology, and I'm afraid that's where I saw IBM Watson start, right? We had a jeopardy where they won and everyone decided. And then they said, well, this technology we can use in healthcare, let's figure out how. Rather than saying, We have a patient, we have a population where they have health inequities, poor outcomes. Let's see how we can improve the outcomes, how we can improve health disparities and what role can AI and other technology play in that? That's right, that's the other way around. You start with the problem that you want to solve and then see what part technology can play rather than start with the technology which I've called Glamour AI, where it's really cool technology, but doesn't improve patient or population outcomes. So there's a reason, I think, why we are where we are currently. Like Seth mentioned, we were very proud of the first ever FDA clearance in, uh, in 2018 for, a, for an autonomous AI for a system making a medical decision. And uh, since then, it has been really about making sure that all stakeholders agree. And like Seth was saying, the inflection point is really now, last few months, next few months, where every stakeholder in the healthcare system sees that this is the way to go.
2: Eric, maybe one more thing for me to mention before we continue that I think might be helpful for your listeners. You have heard us refer to, and, and even in your question asked about specifically autonomous AI. And oftentimes when we talk about what we do, we, we usually start with just uh, defining what is autonomous AI and, and what are most of the artificial intelligence products that are out in the market today or that you, you might often hear about in the media. So if it's helpful from a definition standpoint, most of what you hear or see about is what we would consider to be assistive AI, meaning the medical decision is ultimately still made by a clinician. And you might think of it as uh, clinical decision support. Uh, You might think of it as uh, analytics leading a provider to make a decision. But in, in this assistive AI category, You obviously still need that clinician to ultimately get information and then make uh, a diagnosis and and treatment decision. They, of course, are going to need time for the information to get to them and then time to review. Oftentimes, they are consulting then with specialty care. And uh, as a consequence of all that, you you might expect and, and most likely know that liability rests with that clinician. If you now take that and think about what we've talked about and about what we do, autonomous AI is in many ways the inverse of those things, meaning the medical decision, as you've heard, is actually made by the AI, not by a human. So the computer is making that diagnosis. Therefore, there is no human oversight. And it's funny, we were just in another meeting last week, and we got about 45 minutes into our discussion, and uh, we still get from other clinicians or executives okay but when is the information then going to a person to overread everything and uh, it's just funny this this mindset shift to there is no human oversight there is no human actually looking at everything before a diagnosis is made it's actually the computer and that's what the fda cleared you might also expect then because the computer is making the diagnosis you can do this at the point of care in real time. So that result is instantaneous, both for the patient and obviously their caregivers and the provider. And then finally, this is done in a primary care setting where we can really reach more patients. And I think we'll we'll obviously get into uh, some of our our equity discussion and reaching underserved communities. Um, And I think I should say finally, the liability obviously then would not make sense to rest with anybody else other than the creator of the AI. So we as a company take liability for the diagnoses that, that the AI is making. So hopefully that is helpful in some some table setting for the rest of our discussion on just distinguishing autonomous AI from assistive AI.
0: Seth, I appreciate you talking about the assistive piece of the AI technology, differentiating that from autonomous AI. Um, I'd like to go a little further into some of the criticisms or challenges that, that we see with autonomous AI in healthcare. Just last week, the New England Journal of Medicine, Catalyst, published a commentary piece called, What AI in Healthcare Can Learn from the Long Road to Autonomous Vehicles. And I'll go ahead and read an excerpt for context for our listeners. It says, when most people think of AI, whether vehicles or healthcare, they think of fully replacing the driver or fully bypassing the doctor. While there are many good reasons to completely replace the driver for transportation, this thinking is counterproductive in healthcare. We must learn from the challenges in many steps in deploying fully autonomous AI in other fields. Moreover, we must recognize that in healthcare, there are distinct advantages of augmentation over complete automation. So these authors call out the need or the opportunities for having a doctor or clinician involved in the decision-making, and so they feel that autonomous AI actually poses a liability to the clinician and failed to talk about the use case for medical decisions that can be made by AI without human oversight at the point of care in a PCP setting. So I'd like to have you elaborate a little bit further, if you would, on the use case for autonomous AI in value-based primary care, where it differs from the assistive AI a little bit further, if you would, and the concerns expressed by those who associate autonomous AI in healthcare with driverless cars.
2: I love that you asked this question, and I will uh, attempt to answer it, and then then we'll similarly uh, invite Dr. Abramoff to weigh in as well. Right out of the gates, let me just say, we absolutely see potential value in different assistive AI. So in our efforts to clearly distinguish what we're doing versus what others are doing, certainly there is merit and there is a place, I think, for assistive AI, especially in healthcare, where we are trying to become more efficient. So number one, I think just to, just wanted to point that out. Is this the, the right step or is there, is there a safety issue or concern around autonomous AI? The reason I say I love that you asked that question is, this is uh, some of the brilliance of Dr. Abramoff's approach in doing things the way that we've done these. And, and in fact, is why you see our tagline, on our website is doing AI the right way. This is precisely why we started with FDA and didn't try and go right to market with something that was you know, not rigorously validated, tested, and proven to be safe and effective for patients, not to mention extremely valuable from a cost cutting perspective. So starting with FDA was absolutely intentional. And one of the reasons it was so important to us is, is to make sure that we avoided Exactly what you're alluding to is some kind of AI winter, much like we saw in gene therapy, for example, where you know some companies get out ahead of their skis a little bit. They do something that is potentially not safe for patients. And then what do you end up with concerns and not only around patient safety, but around things like bias, as you mentioned as well. So you're hitting on the very reason we started and spent eight years working with the FDA to first and foremost, make sure our autonomous AI is safe we will continue to cheerlead for doing AI the right way for that very reason.
3: It goes back to even what you mentioned about IBM Watson. And you know, there was an interesting paper. Uh, and of course I saw it in another the authors well. I think the point I make is not what it's about. What we should care about is improving patient outcomes, population outcomes, and we need to look what is the best way to do that. And the best way can be different ways of doing that, including autonomous AI. If we can measure, that we show an improvement in outcome or even indirect way of measuring that, that is always a benefit. In fact, I understand and we have seen the, the concerns with, with autonomous versus assistive AI where it seems so much safer to have a human still overlook the system. But it is only true if we know for sure that the physician, the human, and I'm a retina specialist myself, is actually better than an AI. And there is a very interesting study in the New England Journal uh, in 2007, by the way, where an FDA-approved AI was used for breast cancer detection in in scans of the breast. And so it had been approved by FDA based on a comparison to experienced radiologists, and it did really well. But it was not used in an autonomous fashion, like I mentioned earlier. We were the first to get FDA approval for an autonomous AI. It was used in an assistive fashion, meaning a radiologist sat together with the AI, looked at the scan and made a diagnosis. And someone said, well, actually the trial that led to the approval by FDA, uh, Fenton et al. in 2007, so he was brilliant in, in coming up with this. He said, we have actually never validated this type of workflow. We have only compared the AI to radiologists we have never seen how the interaction of the radiologist with the ai who may say well look again at this small lesion are you sure about that that's the interaction between the ai and the radiologist whether that actually is better for outcomes for these women and they did a study in more than 200,000 women and they compared the radiologist with the ai to the radiologist without the ai and if you start an ai you think of course the AI will always make the doctor better. But that wasn't the case. The study clearly showed that outcomes for women diagnosed without the AI were better than that for them diagnosed with the, by the radiologist with the AI. And that just shows you that the interaction of an assistive AI with a human physician can be very hard to predict, if only because uh, clinicians themselves are, are variable, i meaning... The fact that it works with one physician doesn't necessarily mean that it interacts well with another physician. So A, prove to me that you actually can improve outcome. We should care about population health outcomes and about individual patient outcomes. If you can prove to me that your assistive AI together with a bunch of doctors does better, all all the better. We have shown that this autonomous AI can improve outcomes and we can go into detail about why that is. And I would argue we need to go back to what the healthcare system is about, what we're trying to do here, which is improve outcomes at lower cost, ideally higher quality, better access, right? And so that sort of is an answer to this concern that was voiced in the paper. I get the concern, but we need to be very careful
1: what we actually are doing all of this for. Well, gentlemen, I'd like to talk more about diabetic retinopathy and the use case for autonomous AI and early detection. In the United States, more than 30 million individuals have diabetes. And due to a variety of factors, African Americans and Hispanics are more likely to be diagnosed with this disease. For many minorities, complications include diabetic eye disease, which may lead to severe vision loss and even blindness. While anyone with diabetes may develop vision complications, minorities, including African-Americans and Hispanics, are two to three times more likely than Caucasians to do so. And this may be due to a lack of access to care, delayed diagnoses, coexisting conditions like high blood pressure and even poor education. And experts believe that there may also be a genetic component raising this risk as well. And this is just one example of the multitude of different types of health inequities that impact minoritized and marginalized populations in our country. Consequently, in the value-based care movement, due to the elevated societal awareness around health inequities, the CMS Innovation Center has stated definitively over the last few months that it plans to embed health equity in every aspect of payment models to increase the focus on underserved populations. So I would love to engage you both on this concept of diabetic retinopathy and and how you're leveraging your autonomous AI solution specifically around ensuring that we can uh, mitigate exposure to some of these health inequities. Can you discuss the importance of health equity and the value movement and how autonomous AI can provide solutioning to bring about more parity and outcomes? within the diabetic population. And with this particular use case, how does a telemedicine modality intersect with the AI to create a standard of care and early detection?
3: You made it so clear, diabetic retinopathy, a complication of diabetes, the most important cause of blindness overall in the US in the working age population. So it's not only in people with diabetes, literally for everyone across the board, if you ask someone with with lost vision is most likely because of diabetes more than any other cause. So that's, you know, sort of the problem. And then what you mentioned is that it is uniquely distributed. Not only do too many people go blind and lose vision, it's especially more minorities, rural populations. And part of that, and a big part of that is lack of access to care. We see that every time when we implement uh, the autonomous AI from digital diagnostics, where we go into a place and it turns out that 70, 80% of the people with diabetes who should receive a diabetic eye exam are not getting those. We also know from research going back 40, 50 years that this this visual loss and this blindness from diabetic retinopathy that you and I mentioned is almost entirely preventable if caught early, right? So, yes, it is there. People are going blind and losing vision, but you can prevent it if it's called early before these patients have symptoms. Hence the importance of the diabetic eye exam every year we say in the US. And that's where this autonomous AI comes in because now you can make it available where currently it is not available. This is places like in in rural Iowa where the distances are maybe, you know, five hour drive. It's in in any city, New Orleans, where after Katrina, there was literally no eye care left in downtown New Orleans. People had diabetes wanted to have their eyes examined and couldn't and when we came in with this autonomous ai suddenly literally hundreds of people could immediately get their diabetic eye exam thereby preventing further visual loss and blindness so i think health in is in fact you know one of the main reasons why we think it's so exciting this technology is now being implemented widely because it's really access access to care it's lower cost. It's better quality. You can do it anywhere. There's an outlet we like to say, meaning if you are a patient with diabetes and you're getting your diabetes care in any clinic, they can now, rather than having to you refer you to a retina specialist like me, they can do it right in there within a few minutes. And maybe Seth wants to weigh in also about several aspects of this.
2: Yes, we have said for quite some time, anywhere now you have a power outlet, you can enable access to high quality specialist care. We talk a lot about democratizing access to this high quality care. And interestingly, just last week, we announced publicly that we have signed a partnership with Baxter to distribute our product on their handheld device. And so we are, of course, working with FDA on a, a label expansion to do exactly that. But if you could think before, we had uh, our direct channels where we were actually going to the provider markets, retail, et cetera. We now have this second vector with this large, large and scaled partner who has thousands of devices out in the field today where we can really get at accessing some of those patients that are in underserved areas a lot faster than if we're doing it you know, one at a time, or or just uh, trying to strong arm it and and do it all with our own team. So, obviously, very excited about that. And whereas we used to say something like, uh, anywhere you have a power outlet, you can enable access with their handheld, for example. Uh, you now just need an internet connection. So, we are of course extremely excited to get this to all the patients that need it, and ultimately. Those patients that are waiting four to six months, uh, sometimes longer to get into a specialist setting, or they just are in a a more rural area and they don't have specialists within their immediate vicinity, we now have something we can take to them and enable that high-quality specialty level diagnosis. So uh, needless to say, we think we can do a lot of good in both driving compliance for systems and for uh, provider groups that are looking to improve some of their quality metrics, but more importantly, save site and ultimately help patients have better outcomes, as Dr. Abramoff rightly called out.
0: Gentlemen, you make a really compelling case for this, and I love the, the goals and the mission you have for saving site, for the improving outcomes and driving down costs. And, and this compelling case is it's around the balance of design and access and diagnosability And you've made a safe and commercially scalable AI solution for healthcare with a a design that's intentional for mitigating bias and focusing on the irregularities as a premise for the detection of disease. And it's just, it's really neat to hear this as as you're sharing more about it. I'm thinking about access and how it's, you know, it's also a plug and play solution for access where a patient can have a diagnosis of positive or negative for diabetic retinopathy or macular edema right at the point of care as you're describing without a physician's overread. And your AI solution in primary care has been shown to have a 96% diagnosability outcomes. Can you expand upon these findings with evidence that you've seen with autonomous AI improving outcomes and lowering costs? And for those healthcare organizations out there listening to this interview now, how should they be approaching the concept of autonomous AI as part of their value-based strategy? Should AI systems replace traditional screening approaches as a standard of care? I
3: mean, we wouldn't be saying you can now access this diabetic eye exam anywhere there's an outlet, currently and in the future. You know, hopefully even without an outlet, like Sid was saying. Of course, we only can say that if it's indeed safe and if, in fact, what is interesting, the the accuracy of the AI is is higher than a retina specialist like me, meaning. It's more sensitive, it's safer, it detects more disease, true disease, than a pretty experienced retina specialist like me. That means that with the AI, you actually have better care than you know bringing a patient to me, not because I'm a bad doctor, not at all, but because this specific level of disease is very hard to discern. And so what we went through with FDA and already said, mentioned in the beginning was a very rigorous validation process, checking not only for safety, the accuracy, But also, like you mentioned, for diagnosability. It is interesting if you build an AI that is very accurate, but it doesn't improve access for, let's say, for example, for minorities. It only works in very specific groups. We did and wanted to show, and FDA wanted us to show, that it works in all populations equally well. That's the diagnosability. If you take the 13 million people with diabetes in the U.S., and there's many minorities and under-provided, uh, under-resourced populations in there, like you said, for many reasons, you need to be sure that you can reach all of them. And that 96% diagnosability is across all people with diabetes, not just select subgroups who happen to have better access to care. So it is not just that we say you can now access it anywhere there's an outlet. We actually can say that it is safe to do so, and it's equitable, unbiased, To do so that the clinical trial showed that there was an absence of racial and ethnic bias in the ai the output of the ai so with respect to the points you mentioned yes you can now improve access and then what you call screening which actually is a is a sensitive issue because you may now be aware that medicare is not allowed to reimburse screening that's why there was a special amendment to allow mammography screening for breast cancer that could not be reimbursed under Medicare. And now it's, it's a special amendment anyway. So we don't use the word screening, rather early detection or early diagnosis of diabetic retinopathy. And absolutely, you can see this compared to telemedicine. I would argue, and we have shown this in multiple studies now, and we see it where, where, where we implemented, that telemedicine typically means that someone takes the images And Then later on, sometimes days or even weeks later, a retina specialist like me reviews those images, and the delay is key, it turns out, because it's not real time. It means that the patient was there with their diabetes doctor, so to say their diabetes provider, their diabetes nurse, does not know whether they have the disease or not after the images have been taken. With the AI, you do. You get an immediate result within seconds. With the telemedicine approach, it takes days, meaning patient is already gone. Maybe less motivated to 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 make an appointment if necessary. You know, maybe we'll call, get a call back. Maybe won't answer the phone. All sorts of friction that essentially you lose the advantages of this. You know, early access to the early the, the early diagnosis of the diabetic eye exam. So yes, there is a place for telemedicine, but we think the autonomous AI essentially is the way to do this, where you have real-time, immediate, when the patient is still there.
2: Just a couple of points I would add. The point on telemedicine is interesting. Dr. Abramoff hit it, that when you have not only a real-time feedback on the images to make sure that you can actually get a valid test result, but you also have a test result to discuss with the patient and a referral there in the presence of the patient uh, to an eye care specialist, if need be, you know, we are already starting to see the benefits of that immediate referral. So I think there is a lot to be said. Look, the telemedicine has done a lot of good as we've seen over the last couple of years, but I do think there's a lot to be said around a point of care diagnostic in real time. The other thing I just would point out a couple things about the technology itself, our pivotal FDA trial was done in primary care. So it was, Dr. Amiroth talked earlier about just sort of the the design of the technology and having the best in mind for things like workflow and how it will actually work in a real live setting. And so doing our pivotal trial in a primary care setting with low-skilled operators who had never operated other eye care technology before, and then getting the kind of results that we got really demonstrates both how powerful and effective, but also how well-designed the technology is for wide-scale adoption. From a practical standpoint, the other things I would hit is it is extremely scalable, right? So we, in in this country anyway, and we just spent some time overseas, and of course, everybody thinks about these things a little bit different. But I think in the U.S. in particular, oftentimes we, and, and I am guilty of the same are prone to just throw more people at issues. And what's awesome about the platform that we're building is it is imminently scalable, meaning it's something that the AI itself processes in seconds, and you need just a a low-skilled operator to uh, obviously take care of the, the patients there with the device and to be able to get a point-of-care diagnostic in real time with a low-skilled operator, you might imagine not only increases access and democratizes access for many patients who otherwise wouldn't have received care, but it's about a third of the cost of some of the other substitute products is probably the easiest way to say it. So we think there's a lot of power in that, and we think it's there is some clear differentiation. And uh, I might also mention... Diabetic retinopathy is our first product to market, of course, but I think it's important to note we are not building a point solution. I've I've mentioned several times that we're building a platform. So if you can begin to think about the many different tests that we can stack on top of these sensors that are going to be out in the field, we really are going to unlock a, a ton of value for all stakeholders, the patients, of course, the providers that are utilizing our platform. The payers in particular, uh, our healthcare system that ultimately is looking for different ways to to save costs. And so if those points help round out sort of maybe some of the differences between what we're building and, and some of the existing solutions that are out in the market today, hopefully that's helpful.
1: Well, thank you for sharing that. And yeah, definitely helpful. And I just wanted to, I guess, pivot our conversation a little bit, given that we have so many of our listeners that are primary care physicians or executives leading ACOs and, you know, they, they, they're probably thinking, you know, I wonder you know how this uh, autonomous ai solution could help me improve my coding and documentation for having a greater level of specificity around burden of illness in my population and as family physicians are entering into these risk based contracts with ma and commercial payers and also join these acos they're increasingly finding that payment Depends on more than just the the CPT and the ICD-10 codes on their claims. I mean, patient health status is really one of uh, several factors, including cost, utilization, patient satisfaction, that are driving new models for payment. And physicians now are having a in value-based care, having to document these uh, hierarchical condition category codes that have long been used by CMS to predict costs and set Medicare Advantage rates. And you know, there's not only the the play in, in terms of how these risk-adjusted capitated monthly payments impact reimbursement from MA plans and and, and, and influence the, the benchmarking but most importantly you know as I mentioned earlier having a greater level of specificity around burden of illness, you know, helps you allocate and direct resources better to deploy more effective population health interventions. So I wanted to ask you both if you could describe how the digital diagnostics AI solution for early diagnosis and detection may support some of these risk bearing entities out there that are trying to improve their coding and documentation of burden of illness. And are there any specific case studies that, show uh, where an improved uptake of diabetic eye exams may improve the performance of some of these uh, ACOs and, and risk-based MA plans?
2: Yeah, certainly there are. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll take a shot at that. And then as we've been doing, I'll, I'll invite Dr. Abramoff to fill in any gaps. Um, specific to case studies, uh, we, are, we have a, a number of those in process right now. Some recent ones that are actually out kahaba uh, comes to mind that is a, a federally qualified health clinic uh, down south where one in three patients with diabetes had referable levels of diabetic retinopathy after 90 days of implementation so you know this is a clinic that um, that had a relatively low compliance rate for the obvious reasons you know patients just not going the, the extra step to go to a specialist and get this eye exam and pretty exciting and, uh, and, and actually scary, I should say, that that high a number of patients had diabetic retinopathy just within the first few months of going live. So we, we certainly are, uh, the, the exciting part about that is that we're catching it. And as Dr. Amroff mentioned earlier, it's something that's eminently treatable as long as we know about it. Uh, another one that comes to mind is Hopkins where uh, we had certain examples where there was a a less than 40% compliance rate with uh, adults in particular going to get their eye exams. And uh, after being at Hopkins, we now are over 80% in those same locations. So from an incentive alignment standpoint, you might think about things like HEDIS and STARS. And you, of course, mentioned HCC and RAF. You know, our our technology has, and that is honestly what we spent probably the better part of two years doing is is working with the the different folks like uh, Dr. Abramoff had mentioned, the NCQA, the American Diabetes Association, certainly have had tremendous support from the American Medical Association, the AAO, uh, among many others, CMS most recently. And it is Going that path, and as I said earlier, doing things the right way, which is what we think has really teed us up to start to help folks like the ones I've mentioned close care gaps and then ultimately uh, hit some of their quality metrics and incentive dollars, bonuses that they're trying to unlock. And those are a couple of examples. I think one more example comes to mind, maybe more forward thinking, right? As we see Some of these metrics and incentives orient more towards patient experience. I think we're seeing that that is going to become more and more important in some of the the benchmarking and scoring. And we have another customer that is just a a fantastic customer in Parkview in the Midwest, where they are really starting to to see some feedback come back from patients that are getting our tests done in their setting. And it is, Exciting to see that patients are reacting so favorably to, you know, what we think is a a, a very non-invasive, easy to use, patient-friendly technology. So that might be the third piece I would mention is is besides the things that we've seen traditionally, like key to stars, RAF, HCC, et cetera, this move towards the patient experience and measuring that, I think also is something that uh, we've seen early on as reflected very favorably on, on our technology out in the field. Uh, Michael, I don't know if you want to add any more about any of those case studies.
3: The case studies are are just very exciting. We have some others where we showed, very importantly, follow-through improving from around 10% to, to more than 50%. The follow-through is ultimately what decides the outcome. So once you have the compliance up, like Seth was mentioning, it's also important that if the output of the AI says there's disease... There's an immediate follow-up and you know, likely treatment. And so that is, you know, we have studies now showing that that is changing as well because of the impact of the autonomous AI. And this is compared to telemedicine. And so I also wanted to mention with respect to the you know the groups you mentioned in the beginning, we were very careful to make sure this was going to be a very fine-grained CPT code. So that it was easy for everyone, both auditors but also healthcare systems and providers. We normally take a lot of trouble coding for this. You have one CPT code, 929. It describes the exact disease process and what happened to the patient. And so we all know what happened to the patient and why it happened. And we don't have all these, you know, chart reviews and other things. So it was a very fine-grained CPT code, very deliberately created to make sure that this was as easy to code for as, as possible. And we will keep doing this, you know, with future AIs, of course, like said mentioned earlier.
2: I didn't hit coding so much, but but Dr. Ramamoff makes a good point from a program integrity standpoint with especially some of the payers, government payers included, whereas historically, you might look through pages and pages of chart notes, try and figure out exactly what was going on or exactly what diagnosis was arrived at. Interesting, now that we have uh, an autonomous AI, the coding becomes pretty simple and eminently traceable to what exactly happened when, what the result was, et cetera. So it's one thing that we didn't mention, but again, is, uh, is an exciting thing to look forward to in the future where autonomous AI really c- could potentially clean things up or, or be very attractive from a coding perspective, because you'll be able to look back retrospectively and see exactly what was done uh, just based on the codes that were used, knowing that that tracks to specific technology that's been cleared. So uh, maybe one more point there for consideration.
0: Gentlemen, it's really exciting to think about all the potential that AI has to improve healthcare and healthcare delivery and outcomes and costs. And it, as we're thinking about this transition to value based care, you know, things that have been talked about a lot recently include interdisciplinary care teams, this technology that supports the physicians and clinicians and allows people to practice at the top of their license. And, and, and what we're trying to drive to a, another outcome that we'd like to see is allowing providers to spend more time with patients that need them most on things that are the most complex, like chronic disease, patients, and comorbidities, and diabetes. And, and, and with autonomous AI, with the implications it has for the automation of routine tasks in the clinical setting, I really think it can help reduce the physician burden and reduce the burnout that we've been seeing lately with, uh, with COVID-19. Can you provide perspective on how you think autonomous AI can improve Physician productivity and effectiveness, in addition to the impact on cost and clinical outcomes, should healthcare organizations also be thinking about how AI can ameliorate the suffering in their physician workforce as well? Well, I will take that
3: being a physician myself and you know, suffering under too many clicks for every patient. Part of the goal is exactly that: improving physician productivity. But in our view, you can most effectively do this with autonomous AI. With assistive AI, you still need the provider, right? The, the provider still needs to be there, still needs to be spending time with that specific patient. With autonomous AI, rather than spending time with patients who do not need the specialist care, because the, the AI can easily triage or, or find that those don't need care, they're fine. We can now, because of the AI, the autonomous AI, make sure that those patients will actually need the care of a specialist, the treatment, the very specific knowledge, get that. And it also means from the physicians, from the provider side, that they can spend their time on the the patients that need their care and their expertise the most, essentially improving their their patient mix, both from a top-of-license perspective as well as an efficiency perspective. So in a way, you you scale the specialist by rather than them having to spend time for a 1,000 patients, 90% of who have nothing that that the specialist can do, needs to do something about, now they can focus on the 10% that actually need their care. You essentially massively scale the expertise and availability of that uh, specialist, of that clinician. And that of course, as physicians, we're all trained to take care of patients to the best of our knowledge. And it's just more rewarding to make people see again or prevent them from seeing or, you know, in my specialty specifically, prevent them from being disabled or dying even. And so it's more rewarding from for a physician perspective to do something where they can actually make a difference. From that perspective also, in addition to hopefully having fewer clicks per patient, it's a win-win-win for everyone here.
1: Well, I wanted to take our conversation now back to algorithmic bias and fairness. You mentioned this earlier in terms of some of the known biases and AI-based algorithms, and the industry is in a deeply introspective moment right now, realizing that routine medical practice continues to treat Black and brown patients differently from white patients. And, you know, that just has to change is if we're truly to transform our health system and improve outcomes for all and as we look to ensure health equity, there's a growing concern around AI, machine learning, data science, and the risk of automation reinforcing existing biases through the use of algorithms. There's a study I'll reference where in the context of value-based care, there was an algorithm that was commonly used to identify eligibility of patients for care management programs. And it reduced the number of black patients identified for extra care by more than half, and that particular algorithm detected patient risk by assessing the amount of healthcare dollars spent on the patient and current health disparities and inequities are skewing those risk assessments to favor white patients who are in many cases healthier. And in that particular example, which I wanted to just bring up as, as a reference point, I mean, removing algorithmic bias and you know, the study showed that uh, it would result in a, a nearly a 30% rise in black patients receiving additional services. So I wanted to elaborate more on this, on some of the specific challenges with the use of AI systems and in addressing inequities due to implicit biases and algorithms. How do you mitigate bias through AI design and in regard to your particular solution for diabetic macular edema, how does black box AI versus biomarker-based AI compare in bias mitigation? You
3: bring up a great point. If like, as we claimed earlier, a big goal is to address health inequities and improve access for everyone. So we all have equal access to care in this case, the diabetic eye exam if you claim that, are you sure that you're, you know, the AI is not biased and making it worse rather than better? So we, we were concerned with that very early on. So a part of that is the validation, like the clinical trial that led to FDA authorization was designed to make sure there was no racial or ethnic, and, and by the way, other biases as well. So it, it, it literally with empirical data showed that there was no bias, but It can still be hidden in very small amounts. And so part of mitigating bias is, of course, A, you know, actually proving it in clinical trials. But before that, also making sure across how you build the AI, what we call the total product lifecycle of the AI, starting with the concept. And, you know, I can go through some details all the way to implementation and even reimbursement, making sure that you do not introduce bias across any of these steps in how you develop it, design it, train it maybe some of your listeners are familiar with a series on Netflix called coded bias where this was about face recognition where there was a you know really well performing algorithm for face recognition and then a very savvy researcher found that her face and she was darkly pigmented it didn't pick up on her it was essentially a biased algorithm that worked really well for lighter pigmented persons, but not for darker pigmented persons. And so she went into that and the wise in the house. And part of that is, is the training data. So you may remember that the type of AI we built tries to mimic the brain. And so part of that is training, you know, this brain, this, this AI, this neural network. And so... The performance is really dependent on what you put into the training data. If the training data is biased, for example, a little bit of explanation. Let's say that you have darkly pigmented and lightly pigmented retinas in the training set, and it so happens that the darkly pigmented patients happen to have less disease in this in this sample, right? And so now you train the AI; it will learn to associate incorrectly that dark pigmentation means less likely to have the disease. Well, now you have a biased AI because after training, it sort of implicitly sees that if you have a new patient with a darkly pigmented retina, oh, this is less likely to be disease. Well, there's other ways you can introduce bias, but it's probably the most famous one because of this Netflix series. And so you can partially mitigate it, like you said, by making sure that how you train and where you get your training data from is well understood and demographically well characterized. But there's other more subtle parts where you can introduce bias that you also need to mitigate. You know, I can talk for hours about this. I don't think that's that's what you want me to do. But, but let me say that, yes, bias is a big concern. I think we saw this very early on. We started meeting with FDA in 2010, where we said, hey, we want a computer to make a diagnosis. I started thinking about this this idea of bias very early on and actually did a big study in Kenya because we were concerned, as was FDA, about you know what is the effect of pigmentation, different pigmentation. Once you train an AI, how will it affect when patients have darker pigmented retinas? And it turned out, and we published that in, in 13 or 14 or so, that it actually did not have an effect. But it remained a concern, and that's why we designed the trial where we actively wanted to prove there was no bias. But again, it's more than just a training set. It's more than just how you do your clinical trial. There are many more aspects that go into excluding bias. It can be very subtle, but it can be addressed.
2: I think Dr. Abramoff obviously covered this very well. And as you can hear, has been well ahead of the game for years. In fact, over a decade now in making sure that uh, what we build is safe, effective, and of course, unbiased. I think interestingly, last week or the week before, there was another article around this topic. I think it was Stat that put it out, and it hits on some of these topics of fixed algorithms versus black box or continuous learning. And you can hear not only have we been transparent and intentional around our design, we've actually proven that using this biomarker approach lends itself to... An AI that is invariant to race, ethnicity, gender, et cetera. So I think the design is very important, as Dr. Abramoff called out. I think also I would just say we went to the FDA with something that ultimately was fixed. And so it's not as though what we submitted was was good, you know, just at the time and now the algorithm has has learned something that is potentially harmful or different. If we want to change our algorithm, we go back to the FDA with updated data and information, again, transparently uh, showing that what we have is in fact uh, a meaningful improvement, not just black box AI, like like, uh, unfortunately we do see out there. So hopefully you've heard, this is something that is near and dear to our hearts. And certainly we would encourage others to take much the same path. And at times it can be arduous, of course, but we have, as I mentioned earlier, Patient safety is paramount, and so taking this approach, we think, is not only the right thing to do, but but also sets us up for for strong adoption and commercial success as well.
0: Thank you, Dr. Abramoff and Seth. We really are grateful for your time today. As we wrap up our conversation, I'd like to discuss the future applications of autonomous AI and value-based care. Are there emerging clinical use cases being considered, and what about the potential intersection of precision health and genomics? can we better help individuals thrive based on factors that are specific to them by having contextual knowledge about a person's behaviors, environment, genomics, and even more?
2: I think it goes without saying that we absolutely are aligned well with the future of value-based care and the, the platform that we're building. I've talked about things like Closing care gaps and specifically HEDIS and STARS, quality metrics, RAF and HCC. So those are all, I think, top of mind for us, especially as we think to the future. You know, what, what other indications make sense to stack on top of our existing platform? So we think, if we think about other diseases of the eye. Of course, you might have seen on our website or heard us talk about not just saving sight, but also saving lives. And uh, likely the first indication we would bring to market is a product for skin cancer in particular. Uh, So you know, you might expect that there are all kinds of good things we can do with a product like that. We also think that there's a a number of things on that HCC RAF list that not only add a lot of value to the clinics that are considering them, but also could could save lives differently that way. So I'm referring to things such as cardiovascular disease. We've looked at certainly things within the ear as well. There are things from a neurological standpoint That we can do so we are looking especially with our partners at what adds the most value to patient outcomes and obviously is on a good parallel path with what is good for incentives i think we're very excited to see what the future holds in terms of dozens if not hundreds of indications stacked on top of these sensors that we have out in the field michael what would you add to that
3: I couldn't agree more. I think right now we're very focused on what, uh, you know, as value for all stakeholders currently, that is very patient specific. As you move into more population risk, individual patient risk, which is harder, by the way, to reimburse and otherwise to fit into the healthcare system, there's a lot you can do, not only from the retina, from also from other tissues, including genomics, where you can assess a risk for a patient. So rather than say you have this or that diagnosis, you have a certain risk and you need closer management or, or follow up. That's a little bit harder to fit into the current system, but uh, definitely, you know, in a few years, you expect what well, we expect to see many more of those. And that's probably referring to the, the question you asked about how does this all fit together?
1: Well, gentlemen, it's been a, a great pleasure being with you both today. For our listeners out there that want to learn more, how can they find out more about the great work that you're doing there at Digital Diagnostics?
2: I would love for folks to check us out at digitaldiagnostics.com. And from a a platform perspective, we would love interaction specifically on LinkedIn, I think is uh, is where we spend most of our time, but digitaldiagnostics.com and and LinkedIn are good spots to, to find and interact with Dr. Abramoff and myself.
1: Well, thanks again, and great work. I hope we're able to continue the conversation at another time in the future. And yeah, I'm excited about this great innovation that you're leading with in terms of autonomous AI and improving health outcomes for for those in our healthcare industry.
2: We love the work you all are doing and we'll continue to follow you. It's been a great pleasure to be with you
3: all. Thanks so much for having us, it's great.